From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, deep learning for geographic atrophy. It performed extremely well, but it it was not inferior, but it was slightly superior to the retinal specialist and highly accurate compared to the reading centers. I have a friend who tells me, with some authority, that a Rhodes Scholar is someone who has a promising future behind him. This quip can, to some extent, be applied to artificial intelligence as well. But there are some problems to which AI, at least in its current iteration, is well-suited. The most well-known of these is image recognition, particularly in the clinical setting. There's the 2016 study co-authored by researchers from Google identifying eyes with diabetic retinopathy. More recently, Emily Chu from the National Eye Institute published a deep learning identification analysis of eyes with geographic atrophy. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Chu as my guest today. What is the clinical definition of geographic atrophy, Emily? So geographic atrophy uh, is described, at least on color photographs, as a well-demarcated area of missing RPE, so you can see the choroidal vessels. And it's usually circular, that's what the reading center calls it, and it's, a, you know, at least when we started with the error, it was 175 microns in diameter, or an eighth of a disc diameter um, in diameter. But as time went on, we, went, we got a larger size, about 433 microns when we did ERITS 2, mainly because the reproducibility was better with a larger uh, size. You know, the smaller ones are hard to reproduce. So it's a round, demarcated area of, of depigmentation of the RPE, um, usually as a circular and at least of a minimal size, depending on which study you're talking about. I'm going to start out with a sort of bottom line question, and, and we can build from, from here. Um, yeah. What is the current therapy for geographic atrophy? And if there isn't any current therapy, uh, why is diagnosis important clinically? So clearly we don't have any current effective therapy for geographic atrophy. But geographic atrophy really is the endpoint for any p- person with age-like generation. So this is the endpoint we'd like to be able to treat in some way. Even though we don't have the treatment, it's important to identify patients who have it or maybe developing it or look at the growth rate to, to see whether we can in any way intervened and changed that uh, because it's a public health problem. You know, we, we have uh, something like 288 million people in 2040 who's going to have age macular degeneration, and the ultimate end stage is geographic atrophy. Then even if the diagnosis is of limited value to an, to an individual patient, it, 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 it does have um, va- value on in, in, a, in a population um, in terms of, of planning out clinical studies and, and uh, studying the, the, the natural course of the, the pathology. That's exactly right. And, and setting up, um, you know, ways identifying it to, to detect for clinical studies. You know, if we're going to study it, it's important to know uh, which patients who are going to progress and who, and all those risk factors are important both for progression if we think about intervention and also just a natural history for use in counseling the patients. We're going to be talking in, in the context of, of this study um, about AI. Prior to the advent of artificial intelligence, 
How were geographic atrophy patients identified for large clinical studies? Oh, this was most, when we did ARIS, it was on color fundus photographs, which sometimes, if you can imagine, was difficult to really know the, the real margins. When we moved to ARIS 2, we had a subset of patients who had fundus autofluorescence, which is a little bit more clearly defined with black and white photos. And then finally, um, the, in ARIS 2, we also obtained op- uh, optical coherence tomography, or OCT, which is probably the more preferred way in the more modern multimodal um, way of doing things. So ultimately, I think we like to have all three color photographs on this autofluorescence and OCT to really diagnose geographic atrophy. But even in the context of, of having all of these avenues and, and all of these data, for those studies, it was tremendous, tremendous labor um, to, to oh, classify absolutely. different patients. Yeah. Um, you employed a category of artificial intelligence called deep learning. What is deep learning, and why did you think that it might have particular value in this context? Well, artificial intelligence has been around for decades, as you know, and it's only with the deep learning, the, the powerful computers, that you know, deep learning is, is a system that mimics our brain in that we, the neurons work in many ways, and it goes through several filters. You, you, uh, you input something, and it goes through different layers, and, and finally it sort of reiterates to another and others, I mean, I'm not a computer scientist, but clearly this is how I understand it. Different layers are, are put through, and then finally you have an output that mimics what a, what a human brain would actually go through to determine whether there's a presence or absence of that particular figure or, or looking at the quantitation of this. Uh, so that's how, that's how deep learning works. Uh, and clearly, uh, and, and you don't have to have preconceived ideas. You can just learn by looking at images uh, over and over again. It reiterates. It learns with more and more samples given to it. So it's a very powerful tool. So with regard to this tool, can I get you to describe the design of your study? So we have patients that were followed for 10 years in the age-related eye disease study, ERIDS, and we know how patients have progressed over time from large drusen to disappearance of drusen and then geographic atrophy. And these were graded by the reading center at the Wisconsin Reading Center. So we have what we call ground truth or the, the standard gold standard of what was considered to be the presence or absence of geographic atrophy. So this is well demarcated and well documented in these nearly 5,000 patients who were seen and these patients had either no AMD or the presence of late AMD in one eye. Uh, and we followed those patients through. And using deep learning, we took the whole, the whole population to see whether we can detect the progression to geographic atrophy, detecting geographic atrophy in that particular group with everybody, you know, nearly 5,000 patients there, can we detect whether geographic atrophy is in the center or not? And that's important because once the center is involved, you lose vision. That's when the central vision loss is is pretty profound. Uh, You know, two-thirds of our cases start around the center and one-third start right in the center. So for those two-thirds, it's important to know how long does it take to go to the center. And finally, the third thing we did was looking at patients who had geographic atrophy. Can we, can we predict or can we detect whether centrally involved or not? So those are the three different models that we looked at to see whether we could detect geographic atrophy based on deep learning uh, and comparing to the, the reading center goal standards. 
and we compared it to what clinicians would do. So we had basically 11 clinical centers and 88 retinal specialists who gave an opinion when they saw the patient back. They gave an opinion whether the patient had the various aspects of, of AMD, and one of them was geographic atrophy. So we then compare the model uh, performance to that of the clinicians. So that was the basis of that, to see whether we had anything that would be uh, important to, to, to help in the clinical care, and in particular for clinical research, where it's so expensive and, and takes such a long time to detect geographic atrophy in, in these ratings. And, and it's, it's, it's a very long process that, that we'd have to do in, in the reading center. So let, let me see if I, if I follow you. I'm just going to break things down a little bit for my own self. Uh, you had the the clinicians um, review a a large series of it, it was it was photographs that that were that were taken. Well, actually, it was the patient who saw the patient or who saw the clinician at their study visit. So the clinician actually had the fundus photographs as well as the uh, clinical exam. So they determined based on their clinical exam and mostly looking at fundus photographs because they had to they had to agree or not agree with the fund with the reading center and so they looked at the fundus photographs agree or not and and had to say what they thought the the uh, the photograph basically showed to them and this this diagnosis that the the clinician made was was then taken as the objective truth what what do you call it? ground truth and this well, the ground truth is actually yeah. the reading center. The reading center is the ground truth. That's that's a gold standard because you know the reading center had very specific uh, uh, ways of grading. It was a very standardized protocol, and what they're called, they had grids to see how big it is and all this. So they they had very specific uh, uh, specifications or definitions, and and we obviously gave that to our clinicians as well. But clearly, they were not the, the learned. A reading center that did that uh, day in day out. Saying. Yeah, I see. And so the deep learning neural net was trained on the the ground truth from the the reading centers. That's correct. Compared okay. to the reading center, exactly. And then exactly. It, it, it was um, it was validated um, by reading other uh, unlabeled uh, readings from the reading center, and its performance was compared to clinicians. That's correct. It's compared to clinicians. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now, as as you said, the 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 data was derived from multiple centers, presumably with different sorts of equipment. Did did you have to perform any normalization, standardization of the photographs before applying the the algorithm for the for the deep learning? You, what, so what what I'm what I'm asking is is that if you've created this model that's performing well. Do you know that it's going to perform well regardless of the equipment that's producing the photographs that it's reading? So, you know, it, this is obviously not real world. This is a specialized uh, clinical trial where we certify each of the equipment to make sure it's up to snuff. And, and most of them were pretty standardized. And a lot of them were actually done on film. So this was like 92. People were not even doing digital work. This started in 1992. So some of this were then, then actually digitized. So we did, we did standardize the, the machine. And, and, and obviously, it was going to depend on the patient themselves or patient factors, if there's cataract, et cetera. Uh, so when we did do the actual uh, image uh, 
work, we, we did standardize that at the, at, the, at the level of the deep learning, not before that. So when the patients, you know, had photographs taken, it was standardized on, on certain equipment. But again, this depended on, you know, the technique of the photographer and also uh, the, uh, the actual patient himself. So, so that, there was some variation. But when we got the images, we did very specifically normalize that to say very specifically, this is what we wanted to do. And that was, that was actually done um, during, just before the, Im- the image training was done, the t- training set was put together. I don't want to get too granular in the discussion of the construction of your convolutional neural network, but I do want to ask a couple of questions for listeners who, who don't know a lot about this, this field. How, how many layers and, and weights did your architecture have? And, and why, why does it matter? Why, why should I care about things like layers and, and, and weights? Well, the layers are done about 300 layers or so, and I think they're done until you, and and we have about 21 million weights. In other words, these are parameters that are looked at. So there's so many factors in here that are important, and and mostly it's to to for 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 accuracy and for making sure that the accuracy continues to increase. So we do it, you know, going back and forth, and until the accuracy doesn't doesn't increase anymore, then we know that, that that's sort of the, the ideal place where we need to be. So we end up with 317 or so layers and 21 million parameters, which is a huge number, I think, but I think they're I mean, larger than that in other data sets. So. Oh, it sounds, I mean, from my end, it sounds huge. Um, yeah. So even before you exposed the model to any ophthalmic photographs, you pre-trained it on something called ImageNet. What What is ImageNet, and, and wh- why do models get pre-trained? Well, the training is very important. It's, you know, it's like training them to be like the neural network that, that your brain works in. And, and these are very set up. These, these are very, uh, very determined, uh, talking about, you know, figuring out where edges are and things like that. So it's very important for accuracy to have these image um, image sets trained, and, and that's the main purpose for doing that. And it improves uh, improves your work dramatically, and the, the better the training, the better it is. Uh, and then we do that, but then we train with our own data set, and even then we think we don't have enough images in our 5,000 patient study. So what, what ImageNet must be then is it, is it must be a... Uh, a set of uh, uh, very basic uh, shapes to to yes. instruct the model on 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 what are edges and and component features like that, and then after you've done that, you expose it to uh, to to real clinical photos. That's correct. That's correct. So when it came time to compare the model to clinicians from a performance standpoint, how how did you do that? How what how how did you you compare those? Well, the comparison is done with an, you know with statistical analysis, looking at um, how well we do in terms of accuracy, sensitivity, uh, specificity, and 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 so on. And we have what we call area under the curve that you, you have this curve showing how well it is. And, you know, anything that's within six to eight is really excellent. You know, um, anything less than five is perhaps random. Uh, and then you also have a point for how well you do for the retinal specialist. And we were non, it was not non, it was really non-inferior to the retinal specialist. It was very close. For the late, so for, for, for when we did this in geographic atrophy, we, we based on a, on a model that we used before looking at late AMD and Drusen and, 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 and so on. But this one, you know, 
the, it, it performed extremely well, but it, it was not inferior, but it was slightly superior to the retinal specialist and highly accurate compared to the reading center. So it, it did very well with the statistical analysis looking at the area under the curve. Huh. I can certainly see the, the, the value of a model like this for the identification of a study population for, let's say, a large retrospective study in, in a manner that would involve uh, less less labor and obviously, therefore, then less cost uh, than uh, the traditional means of identifying a, a cohort to um, study. Is, is this the primary objective of constructing AI systems like this, or, or, or do, do they have other potential clinical value too? Well, we hope they'll have continued clinical value for helping the clinician to detect geographic atrophy over time. But that's going to take a lot more work. You know, we talk about retrospective study, but what we need to prove to validate this is with a prospective study, using this in various scenarios, hopefully in the real world scenario. Um, But clearly we need another study to, to study whether we could actually prospectively do this in order for it to get to the clinic. We, this is still all more for research. There's no way that we can bring this to the clinic yet. Uh, if you speak with the FDA, there's a lot of work we have to do uh, in validating this particular process to to use it in in clinical care. I mean, clearly it could be useful for telemedicine if you detect disease. Um, you know, earlier or, 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 or at the time you've got geographic atrophy, you can use it for helping you hone in for diagnosis and, and give counseling to the patient. And if we are to have an intervention, then you really want to know, you know, you want to be able to intervene and find those patients. So, so there's various reasons for doing this and, and the importance is can be for clinical care as well as clinical research. So you've you've created this this wonderful tool now that is uh, on on par, perhaps even a little bit better than the 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 clinicians is on par with the with the reading centers. Are you using this now? No, we haven't we haven't used it yet. We we'd like to uh, you know test it in a in a in a prospective study, and we're hoping to do that in the future. So we haven't quite use it. We know we haven't used it in clinics where we have other algorithms that we're working on that we might be easier to use for. It's part of the whole story. I mean, this is part and parcel of looking at AMD in general. So there are many other lesions we want to look at um, that that are part of it. So we are hoping to instigate that in some of our clinics to see whether there has any clinical value. But it's a long process. We're not there yet. It's going to take a while, unfortunately. I think because it's a public health issue, I think some of these findings are, you know, can really help us in the future because we're just going to be overwhelmed and inundated because this, this disease is going to increase in prevalence. Not so much in prevalence. The prevalence is going down, but the number of people affected are going to be increasing because people are living longer. So we have to really consider how to take care of these chronic conditions in the future. Really, really neat stuff. Emily, I want to thank you. This is a really, really interesting paper. Uh, you've been fantastically generous with, with your with your time with me today. I, I just want to say thanks. Well, thanks, Josh, for your interest again. So I look forward to hearing more and more on, on hopefully, well, or actually hoping that we can have more to give to you in the future. Emily Chu is Director of the Division of Epidemiology and Clinical Applications and Medical Officer at the National Eye Institute at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Her paper, 
a deep learning approach for automated detection of geographic atrophy from color fundus photographs, appears in the November 2019 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Chu or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.